Genesis 5, 1 to 6, 8. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in his likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he was and named him Seth. After Seth was born Adam, he lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years. And then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years. And then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Malhalal. And after he became the father of Malhalal, Kenan lived 840 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Malhalal lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Malhalal lived 830 years. He had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Malhalal lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years. He had other sons and daughters, and altogether Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Altogether Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son and he named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years, he became the father of Shem, Ham and Japheth. When men began to increase in number on the earth, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. Then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards the sons of God went to the daughters of men and they had children by them. They were the heroes of old. Men of renown, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become 
and that every inclination and thought of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made men on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animal and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, it just occurred to me it might seem strange to choose this passage uh, and put those verses together. Um, but one of the things that the book of Genesis does is it's, it's structured around that phrase, uh, this is the written account. So you see that in chapter 5, verse 1. You see it in chapter 6, verse 9. And that's kind of how we know where the stories start and end uh, and what parts we're to deal with together. So hopefully that explains to you why we're dealing with these verses in this particular order. Uh, there are outlines if you would like to follow along. Our outline uh, trustee went AWOL for a little while, so just in case you missed out on them, um, there's still some in the foyer. You can go and grab one if you like. Uh, recently I've taken up, well we've taken up a new hobby. Um, it's good to have lots of practices which you're not very good at. Uh, and our latest hobby has been mountain bike riding. Uh, apparently this is a great area, I never knew that. It's a great area for it, there's trails all over the place. Uh, it's lots of fun so far. I'm very unfit and very slow. That will come as no surprise to anyone. Uh, and in the learning process, we've been given lots of advice, you know, how to do this well, how to stay safe uh, whilst riding. And one of the best bits of advice I think we've gotten so far is, look where you want to go. That might seem bleedingly obvious to you, but it's actually really good advice. Look where you want to go. Don't look where you don't want to go. The reason that matters so much is trails are through bush and there's usually trees on either side or rocks. Uh, the trees are big or small, it doesn't matter because hitting them will hurt. And here's the thing, if you look at those trees, you will hit them. It's almost guaranteed. If you look at the tree, that's likely where you're going to end up, so don't look at the tree. So mountain bike riding is essentially this, this strange balancing act of being aware of the trees and rocks all around you and not looking at them. <laughs> I haven't quite mastered that knack yet. Uh, but if you can do that, you'll stay on the path, you'll stay safe and you won't hit anything you shouldn't. Our passage today has lots of trees in it. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that as we read it. It has lots of trees. Some are big, some are small and it's very tempting to look at them. I mean, after all, what on earth happened to Enoch? <laughs> Who are these sons of God? Are they angels? Who are the Nephilim? Are they giants? I mean, there's some big trees here, aren't there? There's lots of questions that we, we would just want to have answered. But the problem with those questions is they are trees. <laughs> and if we look at them too much, we run the risk of hitting them. And we run the risk of missing what this passage is actually talking to us about. The heart of what is, it's recorded for. See, what this passage is recorded for us is something very good, something very profound. See, what we see in these verses is, is God, in the midst of terrible grief, still showing grace. We see in the midst of weary and sid-laden humanity a clear hope. And we see in the midst of death and the threat of destruction, life. See, this passage matters. And it's important for us to see 
It's important for us to fix our eyes and run that balancing act, being aware of those trees, uh, dealing with them as we can, but making our way to the heart of this passage and hopefully, hopefully getting there. So that's what we're going to try and do this morning. It might seem a little strange when we read the first verses of this passage. You know, you get to, to Genesis 5, verse 1 and 2, and all of a sudden we've gone back all the way to creation again. We've gone back to the sixth day of creation and we're reading about how God created man. But there's a reason for that. It's to show us something very clear. Look at verse 1 and 2. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. See, right up front here, we're being reminded who mankind is who people are. We are image bearers of God. We are formed in his likeness. We are unique out of all the creations of God's hand and thereby precious to him. Out of everything we have a special relationship with him. And what's really interesting here is that's not just true for Adam and Eve. That's true for their children as well. Look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. See, the image of God continues, doesn't it? In this, this, this father-son relationship. Uh, Adam was made in God's image, God being his father. Seth is made in Adam's image, Adam being his father, but by implication, thereby, also an image bearer of God. And so it continues through humanity. And the genealogy continues. Now, admittedly, we usually skip it. You might think it's a bit strange uh, that we made, I made Jeff read it. I wasn't just being cruel. Uh, these verses are important. Uh, I'll be cruel by making someone read Genesis 10 in a few weeks' time. No, these verses are important because what we're given here is really a history lesson. We're taken from creation all the way through to the flood. We're given this great fast-forward through that period of time, this 30-second rundown of where the, the line of Seth goes. In a sense, it kind of fun functions like a montage in a movie. You know, when a movie wants to pass a whole bunch of time really quickly, it does a montage and you know, music plays and lots of scenes flash. That's how this works. And what it's designed to do for us is to not focus on specific events or individuals, but to get a general picture of what was happening, to, to, to get a rhythm, a general impression of how things are going. And the great thing about that is it, it makes the things that are different stand out really clearly. I don't know if you heard, as Jeff was reading it, there's a drumbeat in this passage, isn't there? It goes again and again and again. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. You can't help but hear that beat playing through this passage. And it's actually quite a remarkable thing, isn't it? You know, you've got these guys who are living for such a long time, hundreds of years, 800, 900 plus years. Uh, just as an aside, we, can probably, we should take that literally. Uh, there's no reason to not take it literally. It's not about symbolism here. The numbers aren't special numbers chosen for any particular reason. We've got to remember this was a unique time. Uh, these guys were close to creation. The, the curse of uh, sin hadn't yet spread as far as it will. We can take that literally. It's quite plausible. But see, what's remarkable is... <laughs> Even though these guys were living for such an incredibly long time, life for centuries, this amazing blessing, 
still death winds. <laughs> For each of them, hundreds of years of life. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. But see, the, there's a beat skipped, isn't there? <laughs> and that's another reason why we read this, because there's a beat skipped. There's, there's one who was different. Look at verses 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. See, all of a sudden that beat's interrupted, isn't it? Uh, There's no, and then he died. All of a sudden, he didn't die. God simply took him away. Uh, Why did God do that? Well, we're told there he walked with God. It's quite a, a rare thing for the Bible to say. Lots of people walk before God or close to God. Very few people walk with God. Uh, It's a sign of an especially close relationship with God, a close communion with God. See, out of all of humanity, Enoch was closer to God than anyone else. And as a result, God spared him death and took him and he was no more. And that sounds like a great turning point for humanity, doesn't it? After that that, that drumbeat of death, all of a sudden, someone doesn't die. Is this a hope? Is this the end of death? Is is everything going to be different from now, better? Well, no. Because it continues, doesn't it? And he died, and he died, and he died. So Enoch is not the pattern here, a new pattern. He's in fact the exception that proves the rule. Death hasn't ended. It continues. And I think that that, that weight of that is borne out when we come to Noah's birth in verse 28 and 29. Look at those verses with me. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So here at the end of this line, we, we, we kind of get a summary of where humanity's at. That, that drumbeat has been playing and now we kind of, we kind of hit the chorus. <laughs> Mankind is tired. Lamech is wearied by the world, by, by the toil that the curse has brought and in naming his son Noah, he's essentially crying out, help us, <laughs> we need rescue, things are bad, we need help. Mankind is tired, the curse is heavy, sin is wearying and the threat of death is sapping them of hope. And that's even true for this line, for Seth's line, the line of promise. Sin is everywhere. As good and long as life was, sin was an ever-present burden, taxing and tiring people. Uh, Just like riding a bike with flat tyres, you know, you can get somewhere, (laughs) but it's really hard work. Every pedal is a battle. That's where mankind's at. It's a struggle, it's a battle, it's hard work. That is the effect of sin. That's the effect of sin that we feel as well, isn't it? Uh, sometimes sin is a, a sharp pain, sometimes it's, it's abrupt, but often it's every day, isn't it? 
a burden, a weight, a wearying, a threat of death that, that, that weighs on us. You know, we, we, we do become a bit accustomed to it, like, like you would uh, wearing a heavy pack whilst hiking. But every now and again, you feel it more keenly, don't you? When, when life becomes unbalanced, when something unexpected pops up, when a crisis strikes and all of a sudden all that weight comes crashing down and it's hard. <laughs> See, what this passage is telling us, you're not imagining that. Life is hard. It is a challenge. And it's because of sin. And the more life that you get, as our elderly will probably testify, the more you feel that weight. Just imagine then living for 900 years and the weariness that sin would bring. See, what sin does is it prevents us from living, living well. I mean, imagine a hurdler at the Olympics but dressed in firefighting gear. <laughs> like, he's going to make it down that track but it's not going to go real well. He's going to stumble, he's going to trip, he's going to struggle to get back up. He won't go over those hurdles, he'll crash right into them. That's what sin does to us. It prevents us from running this life as we should. It weighs us down. It trips us up. And even at our best, we can't live as we would love to, nor as we were supposed to. You think that's bad? Well, <laughs> worse is to come. Because as we continue through this passage, as we move out of the genealogy into chapter 6, the, the focus shifts again. Now, instead of focusing in on that line of Seth, the, the godly line who are calling on God's name, we, we zoom right out. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. All right, here's a big tree. <laughs> here's, here's a big question that we, we struggle with. Who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? Are they angels? That's one option that's often put forward. Are they men? Are they the sons of Seth? That's the other option uh, that we, 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 we need to, to sort out here. I don't know about you, straight away for, for me, and I, I'm assuming for a lot of you as well, the idea of them being angels is a bit challenging. That doesn't really fit with our usual view of the world. Um, I read an article <laughs> this week of a 30-year-old British woman uh, who had a ghost lover. Um, she was deadly serious. He had proposed to her. They had consummated their relationship somehow. Uh, they were going to get married and she hoped to get pregnant by her ghost lover. Uh, it was a strange article. Um, I think we tend to put Genesis 6 and the idea that this could be angels in that category. That's just too crazy. <laughs> we, it doesn't fit. We can't deal with that. It's, it's too weird. The problem with that is it is possible. <laughs> scripturally speaking. Sons of God can refer to angels uh, and let's be honest, a spiritual birth is kind of essential to our faith. Remember Christmas. You know? It's not implausible. But I think, contextually, contextually speaking, it's a bit better to go with sons of God being the line of Seth here in this passage. Not only is it slightly easier for us to, to conceptualise in our, in our rational minds, but scripturally it fits. Uh, sons of God is, is a way that God's people are referred to regularly throughout Scripture. But I think it fits better with Genesis. 
don't know if you noticed the, the language there in verses 1 and 2 is very similar to some of the language we see in Genesis 3 when we get to Eve's temptation. Uh, if you cast your mind back to, to Genesis 3, you'll remember Eve saw the fruit. She saw that it was pleasing, good looking, and she took it as she wished, all in direct opposition to what God had said, all in denial of who God was. We see the same here, don't we? God's sons see the daughters of men. They see that they're beautiful, pleasing to look at. And they take them, they marry them again, turning their back on God. There's a great similarity here. We, we see this, this pattern repeating. And even more so in the consequences. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. See, just as in Genesis 3, God removed himself from man and a, a distance was created there, so too here as well. God removes himself again, more so, from humanity. And the result being that mankind's days are limited. Now by his grace that takes time to come into effect, but man's days are numbered. God's people have rejected his way, have rejected his goodness, have in doing that rejected him and they've followed their own hearts. And the result of that is death and ultimately destruction. Now during that time we have on earth the Nephilim, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. It's a bit hard to see it in our English but the verse doesn't actually say that these, these Nephilim were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. They're, they're actually just kind of in there as an aside uh, and not related people group. We're honestly not sure who they are. <laughs> it's nice to just be able to say that. I don't know. Uh, the King James translated that as giants. That's probably unhelpful. Um, men of great stature might be a useful way to talk about it or, or men of renown or legendary figures uh, seems to be the best way to understand that. See, humanly speaking, what the, the picture that we're being built here is from a human point of view, this was a grand time in history. <laughs> uh, people lived for a long time, they were beautiful, they were spreading throughout the earth, their, their technology was growing, they were making rapid advances and it was a time filled with heroes, legendary figures. It looks great. <laughs> but, verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Mankind is thoroughly corrupt. <laughs> That's the bottom line here. Genesis 4 ended with mankind calling on the name of God, this glimpse of hope. Well, Genesis 5 dashes that to pieces. Mankind is thoroughly corrupt. Even, even the line of Seth, you know, the, the, the good line, the line of promise, even they are corrupted now. And how great was their corruption? Look at, look at the intense words used there, how great man's wickedness, every inclination of his heart was only evil all the time. It is complete. Mankind is thoroughly ruined. Uh, the other day Melinda took a chicken breast out of the freezer for a week uh, and left it in the garage. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately by the time we found it, it was unrecognisable. 
uh, its look, its smell, its texture. Um, yeah, it was foul. Pun not intended. <laughs> but not only was it foul, it was oozing. And, and, and amazingly, this, this horrible thing could corrupt everything that it touched. In fact, its smell corrupted the whole of the garage. It was unbelievable. Not only was it corrupted, it was corrupting. It was absolutely awful. There was nothing redeemable about it or anything it touched. And Genesis 6 tells us that is mankind. Thoroughly corrupted and corrupting everything it touches. And as Karina mentioned in the kids' talk, it grieves God. Look at verse 6 and 7. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. See, God is, God is shattered here at how bad humanity has become. He is filled with pain at how awful his beloved creation has become so quickly. I mean, it's, it's a stunning insight into God's heart, isn't it? I mean, God is not a traffic cop impersonally handing out infringements to, to, to offenders. God is a parent here, agonising over the decisions his children have made, uh, torn apart that his children have committed unspeakable crimes, grieved at their violence and their offences. I mean, just try to imagine that. The hurt of a child turned like this. I mean, imagine, imagine being Martin Bryant's mum. You know, trying to come to terms with what your child has done. I mean, for years she lived in denial. She just couldn't face it. Well, God's pain is infinitely worse here because his most beloved creation, his image-bearing humanity, the, the, the most precious thing to him that he has lovingly crafted, his children, they are beyond repair. They are utterly despicable. And we see just how deeply God loves them here, not in the good gifts he lavishes, but in the terrible hurt that he feels <laughs> at their corruption. This is sin, it is a grieving of God. And now there is no choice left but the most awful and painful and necessary thing to destroy what he has made. Destruction is coming, utter destruction for utter depravity. And yet, verse 8, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Doesn't that just interrupt the flow of this passage? It, it just stands, it is the most surprising thing to read. After that black and dark and grim picture we've been painted, here's Noah. Remember this child at whose birth was hope was cried out for? Well, now he is the hope of humanity. I mean, really, it shouldn't actually surprise us. Remember what God's been saying ever since the fall. Hope is coming. I have made a promise. The line will continue. Hope for humanity will be there. That line must continue. And so we see it here. God is being faithful to what he's promised. Out of all depraved and corrupted humanity, he is choosing one to be our hope. 
Now, I used to read verse 8 and and think that, well, Noah must have been the last good man on earth. (laughs) I mean, a shocking thing to be, but but that's who he was, that he was, you know, the only one whom God could choose to fulfil his plans through. Uh, You know, I used to read it more like Noah was found to be favourable in God's eyes. But that's not what it says, is it? We're not told that Noah was favourable, we're told that he found favour. We're not told that he was good, that somehow out of all of humanity he had escaped the corruption. In fact, the very description of humanity suggests that he was part of it. Now the point we're being shown here is that Noah found favour in God's eyes. He was shown favour. And I think it becomes even more clear when we understand that word favour can be translated grace. Noah found grace. Humanity's hope was not that there was one good man left in the world through whom God could work his purposes. No, humanity's hope was that God would show grace to one bad man and work through him his purposes. See, what we're being told here is that the last hope, the only hope of humanity is grace. And that has always been the way. Here's what Romans 3 says. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that just sound like what we've seen from Genesis 6 here? But see, Romans 3 isn't describing what happened before the flood. It's not even describing just what happened before Jesus. It's describing us today. This is where humanity's at. We are like them. It's not that pre-flood times were so corrupt, we're just as corrupt. None righteous, none seeking good. We're like them. We deserve what they did. And yet, there's the same hope, isn't there? God's promise, grace through one man. Here's what Titus 3 says. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, that is his grace. See, grace still speaks into this black and dark situation through one man, the man of promise, Jesus Christ. Uh, Earlier this year I heard a story, um, I wasn't able to find it again this week, so don't quote me on the facts, Uh, but it was from a reputable source at the time, so I think it's legit. Um, But it was a story about an eight-year-old girl who was very sick, uh, and she needed to continue living a transplant of some sort. Now, the only appropriate donor they could find in time was her six-year-old brother. So the parents uh, went to this little boy and they uh, explained what the situation was and, and asked him if he was willing to do that. And he thought about it and he said, yes, yes, I'll, I'll donate. You can, you can have what's needed. And so they prepped him for surgery and before they wheeled him into the theatre, Uh, He looked at his parents and he said, I love you, Uh, take care of her, goodbye. Parents thought that was a little unusual, Um, but it wasn't until he woke up out of surgery and they saw the surprise on his face that they realised he thought he wasn't going to (laughs) live. He thought he was going to die. And so he was willing to do that. He was willing to go into that surgery so his sister could live, knowing that he would die. 
and he was glad to do it. And that's remarkable, isn't it? Isn't that loving grace? And yet what the Bible's telling us is that that is still so much less than what we've received. Because Jesus did die. He did die to cure us and to fix us and to save us. Not because we were so great, not because we were so deserving, we were utterly depraved, but because of grace. He died so that we could live. He died that we wouldn't meet this penalty for our sin, this destruction. He died that we could escape it and have life. And as Titus continues in that that, that same passage, he says he died that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So he's saying not only are we forgiven in Jesus, but actually the curse of sin is being reversed in us. He's saying those chains of sin that weighed us down, we're, we're cut loose, we're freed from. Now that's hard work, it takes time. Hebrews 12 says we need to, to throw them off, sin entangles us, we need to, to cast it away and run well. But it's possible. It's possible in Jesus. That burden, that, that pain, that weight of sin that we're so used to carrying, we can be free of it. Because Jesus has cut it loose. You know, it's, it's like that beautiful moment at the end of a day's hike where you can unclip and shrug your pack off. And it, you know, it feels like you can take off. You're just going to float away. So we can shed our sin and be free. Free of its power, free of its burden. True, it will keep coming back. And we'll need to keep taking it off. But it is possible because its chains have been cut by Jesus. And we do it in the hope that that struggle will finish, that we'll one day have freedom forever because that tantalising hint in Enoch's life in Genesis 5, that that possibility that death might not be the end is in Jesus a reality and a promise because life wins in him. uh, Death is defeated in his resurrection And the fact that he was able to go into eternity, into heaven without dying, is not just opening of a possibility, it is a promise for his people. Listen, I tell you, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. That is the promise that is ours in Jesus. Death is not the last word. The last word of our life is life. Life forever. The weariness of life, the pain and hurt are not ours. Rather than downcast futility at the imminent death, we have the promise of eternity. We don't need to fear death or avoid death nor pretend it doesn't exist. We can face it knowing it's not the end. Life is the end. Perfection and freedom and hope and life with God forever. So when times are good, remember your hope. There is far better coming and fix your eyes there. When life is hard, when that weariness and pain of sin weighs heavily, remember your hope. There is better to come. Freedom from those pains. Release from the hurt. Lift your eyes to that hope. 
because through the one man of God's promise, Jesus Christ, his beloved son, we have grace and hope that lasts forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is easy for us to look at the world around us, uh, even to our own hearts and lives, and despair at sin. Its corruption is so great, it is so fast spread, and its burden is so heavy. And yet, Father, we praise you that even in the midst of this darkness, we have hope. We have this beautiful word of grace in Jesus. Father, this word of grace tells us that you have given us a saviour, that you have given us freedom, that you have given us forgiveness and life, all in Jesus. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on him who is our hope and live well for him until he comes again. Help us to remember that he has freed us so that we can cast sin off and not bear its weight any longer. Help us to remember he has given us the promise of life and lift our eyes and fix them on that promise and walk well to the day he comes again. In his name we pray. Amen.